This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The idea of Western feminism in Australia has a long history. Women were given the right to vote in the late 1800s and the 1960s are recognised as the decade that gave rise to a second wave of feminism on our shores. But 20 years ago, author and academic distinguished professor Aileen Morton Robinson challenged the whiteness of feminism in Australia and asked the question, where do First Nations women fit in the feminism hierarchy? You'll hear from her shortly, but first, some music from country and blues musician Adam James. Adam has recently been recording a new blues record while working in the US country music capital of Nashville, so keep an eye out for that. Here he is with the track The Country Singer. Soon talking about familiar ground He'd been on the road for many a day And I listened to what that old man had to say He said, son, music is the love of my life And I never had the time for a while Travel this land singing all around I played in pubs where you kept your head down The country singer knows every song The work is hard and the road is long Singing is what he does best Following the dream is the test People follow you from the start All you do is sing it from the heart Your words will carry them right along As I sit and listen to your song A country song is about the story you tell Some do it okay but few do it well we drove into Tamworth, it was night His eyes lit up as he saw the city lights. The country singing knows every song The work is hard and the road is long Singing is what he does best but following the dream is the test 
early morning rise, a long way to go. The troubadour is headed for another show. At journeys and I felt I knew him well. Just imagine all the stories he could tell. That was Adam James with the track, The Country Singer. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson is a Gorinpool woman of the Kwandamooka people from Moreton Bay. She was the first Indigenous Distinguished Professor in Australia, Director of the Australian Research Council's National Indigenous Research and Knowledge Network, NIRICAN, and is Professor of Indigenous Research at RMIT. She is one of the country's leading intellectuals and one of the most influential First Nations scholars, a long-time advocate for Indigenous rights and has paved the way for new generations of Indigenous scholars. Her groundbreaking book, Talking Up to the White Woman, has just reached its 20th anniversary. Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson, it's so wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Larissa. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Now, before we get into the details of the book and other aspects of, of your work, I was wondering if you could share with us where you were born and what shaped your values and worldview when you were growing up. Okay. I was born in the hospital in Brisbane, but I was raised by my grandparents at Mopi, uh, Mopi Pa, which is uh, also known as One Mile on North Strabrack Island. So my grandparents raised eight grandchildren and we lived uh, in the bush. My grandfather was one of the last initiated men from the island and he and my grandmother absolutely shaped the person that I am. And I think that that was because... Being raised, I guess, by people that were born at the turn of the century, who were grown up by people that were born in the 19th century, those values and notions of who we are as a people all came from those old people through my grandparents and then through to me. So my grandfather and my grandmother always instilled in us, you know, that we were from the island like he used to. When, when we did see white people, I would ask, like, kind of who they were, where they were here, and he just used to kind of say, oh, they're just tourists. And I, I never really understood what that meant as a, a, you know, as a child. But we were raised on the land. We were very, very poor. And so we fundamentally lived off the land. 
and a lot of seafood, crabs, oysters, you know, mussels, fish were part of our staple diet and we went and we hunted and gathered for that, although we also did, um, my grandfather also would go hunting for kangaroos and we grew up with grandparents who basically always taught us who we were related to, who we were connected to, where we came from. Uh, who we could marry, what was our place, you know, in the world in terms of others and to be respectful and to abide by Aboriginal law. So I think that that very much shaped me and I had a very strong sense of self because of it and I still have. I think that it was one of the things that I, when I went out into the world, Um, I noticed that I didn't see myself as being dispossessed. Like I didn't have that sense of anything being taken away because we lived on country. And I think that that made a difference. It's also made a difference, I think, to the community here. It's not to say that the Kwantamooka people didn't experience, you know, policies whereby people were removed. I mean, we did. My grandfather's brother was sent, one was sent to Palm Island, two were sent to the Thingol, two sisters were sent to Sherberg because of their political activity, and his uncles and uh, were sent, like one uh, Uncle Tom was sent to uh, Phantom Island because he was a leper and was also extremely politically active, uh, you know, at the end of the 19th century. His other brother was sent to Vale, which became Lockhart, so the Morton, we're related to the Mortons at Lockhart. So there was a, the family was very much politically active, and that was also part of the way in which I guess my politics was sh- shaped too because we were poor and my grandparents had one pair of glasses. They could only afford one newspaper and that was the Sunday paper. And my job was to uh, read it out to them um, because they'd usually fight over the, the glasses. So whoever had the glasses could read the newspaper and the other person I had to read to. So I, at a very young age, was very much aware of uh, the civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, JFK. I was aware of my grandparents having very sophisticated discussions about civil rights. So I grew up in a household, I guess, where we were taught to fight for our land and to stand our ground and never to think that we were less than white people. So I was raised in this home where my grandmother believed that we all should go to church. My grandfather thought that was hypocrisy. But we would go to Sunday school and anyway, at about the age of about or 10 or 11, I started asking questions of the priest. Now, mind you, when I talk about going to church, on Strabbit there's only one church, but all the different denominations used to come. And uh, I used to help clean and put all the um, things that were involved in the rituals, like if it was the high Anglicans or it was the Catholics. or. But I had no idea that these were really different churches because they were all taking place in the one church. I didn't find that out actually until I was 18 years of age. But having said that, I was uh, expelled from the Sunday school and they wrote a, a letter to my grand, my, my grandparents <laughs> um, saying to me, saying that I should, should not come back to Sunday school. And so my grandfather thought, like, there was no explanation just other than she shouldn't come. So he decided to go and have a word um, the following Sunday. And so what had happened was that I was just asking too many uncomfortable questions. Like, you know, we'd sing those songs like Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, we are precious in the sight, right? So, you know, and then the next minute we'd get these books 
and all the kids in the books were white. So, <laughs> you know, so I'd go, where's the red kids? You know, where's the black kids? So, And I remember this in particular was the Baptist guy, like he was talking about turning the other cheek, you know, Jesus requires us to turn. And I'm, you know, listening at the back. So then I put my hand up and uh, he, you know, said yes. And I said, oh, look, could you please tell me why? How many times do we have to turn the cheek before we do something? <laughs> and I said, you know, I said, like, I'm, I'm really concerned that my grandmother's always got to go down the back of the shop to be served, you know, whereas the white people get served up the front. I said, so how many, you know, how do you do we have to turn the cheek? I said, you know, we go to the mainland and, you know, we're not allowed, you know, people push my grandparents out of taxis and we wait in line, we do the right thing. You know, I was acutely aware of racism at a very young age and I asked questions. So I never got to go back to Sunday school. However, my grandfather believed that I should not waste my time on a Sunday so he gave me the Communist Manifesto and he gave me the Bible and he sat me down and said, these are two ideas of white fellows philosophy and you need to read them back to back and then we shall talk about it. So that was the, that was the way in which I started to engage with the world and I did the same thing at school. I was, you know, always asking questions because I could see the injustice in front of me, the way that um, my cousins, Aboriginal boys, were treated getting the cuts for nothing, you know, and and one of them, uh, bless him, he's passed, but Jimmy Reed used to constantly get the cuts because he couldn't write properly. And in these days we'd see it as a form of dyslexia because the only way that Jimmy could write was upside down. Like he could write, but only upside. And so I used to spend time with him in the lunch hour trying to teach him to write, just to try and stop him from getting the cuts. So I was an introverted child. I was quiet, but I was really observant and really understood that things were wrong. You know, people shouldn't be treated that way. I I saw it as kind of people not caring about people. And I I was very uh, disturbed by that as a a young child, you know. And so I, well, I did. I always kind of stood up. You know, I always ended up in fights, not because of things that I did, but because I stood up for others. So the die was set really early on a range of things, particularly asking the hard questions. But I also think it's an interesting thing about the way that you deeply analyse the philosophies of white culture and and then deconstruct them. And I guess that leads me into a big step in your journey, which was to go back as a mature age student, do your PhD, which you then turned into a book talking up to the white woman, Indigenous women and feminism in Australia. And that has been a highly influential book, probably the most definitive account of the relationship between Aboriginal women and white feminism. Before we dig into that a little bit more, how does it feel to be marking its 20th anniversary? Oh, God, Larissa, I feel old. (laughs) (laughs) You know, well, it's interesting because I didn't think that the, the anniversary would be marked by anything. What had happened was I I had given a lecture at RMIT last year and one of the people who produced the Wheeler Centre's Broadside Feminist Festival decided to invite me to speak on a panel. And it had been 10 years since, you know, I'd been invited anywhere to talk about anything to do with feminism or gender. 
So then I had to go down to, you know, Melbourne City Hall, which I didn't know where it was, but anyway, managed to get there because of Google. And, <laughs> and your black uh, tracking skills. Yes, and I, <laughs> I got there and I would just thought, oh, God, this is some decolonisation and feminism. Um, so I'm doing, talking to myself, going, Aileen, you cannot go into how problematic decolonisation is as a concept. So can we just try and stick to the script? And I just sort of spoke and I just started raising questions, I guess, about when we make white feminists the centre, then we always position them in a hierarchical relationship to us. So why are we talking about white feminism in the context of decolonisation? So why aren't we really talking about us and the women that we come from and how gender is socially constructed with our cultures. And, you know, I just said I was ontologically disturbed by the reference point on a panel about decolonising feminism and then I just kind of went from there. And anyway, it just went off, you know, and it finished and I thought, oh, good, I actually was really hungry and I booked a restaurant for dinner and I thought well I was going to dinner well no I wasn't the next thing they said oh you have to now sign books and I thought oh right and uh, so my grandniece was there for Kerry Rusk and I said uh, oh PK I'm going to probably be about 10 minutes so and then you know would you mind waiting and we'll go off to dinner well that 10 minutes turned into nearly two hours people were lined up all around Melbourne City Hall with the books for me to sign and you know, and I was taken aback because, as you can imagine, it's 20 years old, Larissa. So I wasn't expecting that kind of response. Then University of Queensland Press said, we're going to have to put out a 20th anniversary edition. And I said, oh, okay. I said, but I'm really hungry. I need to go to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and so off I went to dinner and didn't really think much of it. Anyway, they then contacted me and said, look, can you write a new preface and can we add a new chapter? And I said, okay. I said, I'll write a new preface. And I said, I'd really like the chapter where I review the reviewers to be the new piece because of the time frame between when it got released and when it started to be reviewed. And in that chapter, I basically demonstrate the argument again that's in Talking Up, you know, the, the responses to the book just added data and basically you know, just confirmed, I guess, the argument. But I also wanted to respond to the reviewers because I wanted Indigenous women scholars to respond. You don't have to basically just do nothing when people respond to your work. You know, you can take it up and it's not seen to be etiquette within the academy, but I think that it's really important that we do basically seek to engage because this is the battleground, like the battleground is for the ideas. If we can't disrupt and actually change the way in which Aboriginal people are represented within different theories, then nothing is really going to change on the streets or in the homes of Australians. We have to change the way in which we know and which the way in which we think about Aboriginal people and understand what informs those things about the way in which we think and know in order to change them. So I guess my work on that started in talking up to the white woman as well. Um, that's where I began to look more at the epistemological questions rather than function within the epistemology. When you look back over the 20 years, how far have we come? I realise now that the book actually was ahead of its time and 
you know, I do think that what's happening is people are wanting to engage more now with the ideas and particularly the young because they do understand that there's something terribly wrong at the heart of Australian society and you and I both know that that is the unfinished business. So I do, you know, I, I love Cornell West's phrase where he says, I'm not an optimist but I'm always, I will remain a prisoner of hope uh, because I do have hope that we are changing things. But I think it's really interesting in that um, we are seeing this quite overt violence against African-Americans in the States, particularly since the virus, like it's escalated beyond the secret ways in which that violence, like now it's being witnessed and now it's actually being recorded, unlike I think before in history. I remember, I don't know if you do, when Rodney King was recorded, that was one of the first exposés capturing the police, you know, in the streets. And now we're, we're actually seeing it. But I think that COVID's actually, it's making people, I believe, understand immortality in ways in which Western culture seeks to preclude it, right? So all, all of the theories about development and progression are never theories about death. And yet... That is the destination for all of us. So I think that what COVID is doing is making people realise that life is precarious, that we are indeed biological, not biologically determined, but we are fundamentally biological entities and that life can be taken quickly. And I guess to understand that the prevention here is fundamentally about the care for self and others. That is the way in which we have to behave in order to ensure that we survive the pandemic. And that comes at a time in our history when I would argue for the, the last 100 years, it's been fundamentally about the care of self rather than the care of others. So I think the pandemic has shifted people's or it's disrupted people ontologically, I guess, in terms of their relationships with other and the fact that the injustice has been so pronounced and, you know, on social media, we bear witness now in ways in which we never could either. So it's an interesting time that we're in and it's a time that I'm hopeful of whereby we start to think more about our humanity and our relationship to the planet. You're questioning within your work, particularly this book of mainstream white feminism, has had a huge impact in the dialogue. And as you say, you can look back now and see it was ahead of its time, but it certainly has been a much-cited, important resource since its publication. But I was delighted to read in the new preface that you'd done a wonderful anecdote about how the women elders in your community responded to the publication of the book. And and I thought it gave such a different light of how wide-reaching the impact was outside the academy. And I wondered if you could share that anecdote about the afternoon tea with us. Oh, my goodness. As you know, Larissa, when you get summoned by elder women and there's no kind of, this is what we want to talk to you about. So I had I had sent a copy of Talk It Up, the dissertation, over and, you know, I felt that that was something that, if people wanted to have a look at it, they could. But it was my way of saying, this is what I've done. And, you know, and I gave it to my aunt. So anyway, 
I got asked to come over to her house. So I caught the ferry over and on that road, it just seemed like it took hours to get to the island, but of course it didn't. You know, and I kept thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, am I in trouble because I haven't acknowledged properly? Am I in trouble because I missed auntie so-and-so? Or, you know, I was really feeling apprehensive, I guess. Uh, Anyway, I arrived at the house and they were all sitting around and it blew me away that they were passing the dissertation from one another, opening it up, turning it over, feeling it, uh, rubbing the back, rubbing the front and you know, I, I knew I was witnessing something quite amazing, but and then I still didn't know. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, because nobody really said anything. And I, you know, I I kissed everybody and did my proper acknowledgements, but I was just sitting there watching this happen. And then, you know, my aunt on my dad's side basically kind of, you know, just said that they knew what I'd done, and then they were proud of what I'd done. And my mum, you know, was proud. So it was, a, it was a, it was very. Um, emotional because I was you know I was crying because I I never expected that this academic work of which they they you know when we talked later they say like we don't know what the big words are but we do know you know that you've talked up on our behalf and we're very proud of you and you know and you are you are always someone you know since you were little who's always stood up for others and I think I I, I write in there about you know my mum my mum just says they don't they, they don't know what they did when they educated you. <laughs> no, um, I love so. that. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, anyway, so so it was a it was a, a a moment. I still see them as I as I'm talking to you. I can see them, and I just felt so loved, and I knew I'd done the right thing, and that was really important to me that they felt what I'd done was the right thing. And I, uh, you know, I didn't talk about the launch because, oh, my God, that was another thing where they all came and sat and it was just another moment where I can still see them all sitting up straight backs, so proud. And it was, it was, it really was, I guess, a book that, you know, they knew that I would do my very best in the book for them and to put the position forward. And I do believe that that is what I did. I think the book does a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of firsts in there that I didn't realise, Larissa, that no woman of colour or any black woman had, had ever not interviewed white feminists. <laughs> I was actually, that was going to be actually my next question to you. And you're right about how many things the book did that were really groundbreaking. And going back through this uh, 20th anniversary edition, I was reminded how groundbreaking it was that you position the voice of Aboriginal First Nations women so prominently in the book. And actually, it just brought back reading it for the first time, those memories of actually how extraordinary it was to see us positioned in that way. Yeah, I I mean, I couldn't have done it without the work of scholars such as Jackie Huggins. I mean, there there were Aboriginal women that had written before me, and the beautiful old women, the stolen generation with the life writings, like like the book could never have been done without Aboriginal women. You know, all I was was a conduit and I just had skills and knowledge to put it together. What I was saying was not new. And can I just say that writing that dissertation, I was so traumatised in reading the life writings. Like I read 22 books just for that one chapter and I was not in a good way 
you know, because of just having to read their stories and the grief and the pain of that um, and the loss was almost unbearable for me at times. But I knew I had to read them to distill the cultural nuances in the book because there was that assumption that, you know, the stolen generation lost everything. And what I was trying to prove in that chapter was to say, well, well they didn't because these these women were taken, not as babies. These women were taken when they were like, you know, five to, you know, 12. And they had actually been socialised within their cultures and they were actually acting on Aboriginal cultural values within the dormitories, the way in which they engaged and treated the other kids and, you know, just the beliefs and the way in which they attended to country. So I, that chapter was a way of saying that, you know, people were not vacant when they were removed and they had knowledge and a history, you know, before they were taken. So to assume that they were almost like wiped clean, I guess, because they entered in as servants mainly into white homes was to misunderstand the nature and the power of Aboriginal relatedness to each other in the country. Mm. It also reminded me in going back and looking at the way you did that really groundbreaking positioning that it flowed onto the fact that you'd made a significant contribution over your career as well to challenging the concepts of privilege and white privilege. You've also been a groundbreaker in the area of introducing Indigenous methodologies into the academy. There's lots of ways in which you know, you've know you pioneered. If there was one point recently where the entirety of your academic career has been recognised. It was with your election just this year as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Scientists. So you are the first ever Australian Indigenous scholar to be elected to that very prestigious body. What did that international recognition mean and breaking that ceiling mean? Oh, well, this is, you know, I just think this is just a typical black story. But so when I received the email. I thought it was spam. Oh, that is so, a typical black fella thing. Right. So I just I didn't pay any attention to it because I was also on my way to for a doctor's appointment and I, you know, I just didn't. And then the next thing, I've got this text on my phone from my son going, Mum, have you read your emails? And so I text back and I said, no, I'm going to the doctors. And then he came back and said, you need to read your emails. And I just thought, oh, look, I've got to go to the doctors. And, you know, so I didn't really take much notice. And then when I came out, I sort of thought, oh, well, I better have a look. And then I realised, you know, what it was. And then, I, then of course, I went, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, like, how did this happen? Because I had no idea, Larissa, that I'd been nominated because I don't tell you, right? So cause because it's such a big process of different levels of election, and different committees, like it's not just you get nominated and you get a point, you know, people just vote on the nomination. It actually is far more um, rigorous than that in becoming a member. And I didn't know any of this, of course, until after I found out I was a member. I'm deeply honoured to have been recognised um, and I find it absolutely ironic that the nomination was through the sociology committee. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I giggle, I laugh at that because, you know, despite the fact that I have a double major in first class honours in sociology from ANU, when I've gone for jobs in sociology, I've been told that I'm, 
I'm not a sociologist. Like I don't, you know, I didn't do my PhD in sociology, therefore I'm not a sociologist. But apparently you can do an undergraduate degree in social work but do a PhD in sociology attached to a professor of sociology's grant and you're accepted as a sociologist. And I sit there and think one would have assumed that in order to fundamentally be a sociologist, one would need to actually be grounded in the epistemological foundations of that discipline, which I was as an undergraduate. And in one sense, one could say to some degree that the book, Talking Up to the White Woman, is sociological in my approach. But that for me is, it's ironic. And, you know, I just thought, wow, you know. And since then, I've kind of had quite a number of American sociologists wanting me to write in their books, you know, produce book chapters or, you know, be on selection panels. Like it's quite interesting how they see me as opposed to how I'm seen in Australia. Well, I have to say it's how you're seen in particularly in the First Nations community. We wondered what took them so long to give you the recognition. Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton Robinson is a Professor of Indigenous Research at RMIT University. The 20th anniversary edition of Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism in Australia has just been released by UQP.